right. Good evening, everyone. It's a joy and a privilege and a pleasure and a uh, joy. I did say joy at the beginning, but I'll say it again. Rejoice. You get that? To be here tonight uh, sharing God's word again and sharing uh, living as a church. And um, yeah, so I think this will be kind of like my last uh, teaching here for a little while because my work schedule is going to go to from 8 to 5 to 11 to 8 p.m. every weekday. So I'll be seeing you from home from this. But uh, yeah. But this won't stop, so we will continue with uh, our, you know, we have about two more weeks, actually. We're adding one more to this uh, teaching. Uh, so next week, we're going to do evangelism, and then the, the week after, we're actually going to do giving. So as you can see, actually, um, 11 was serving and giving, but we, uh, we kind of focused on serving on that one. So we're just going to do a separate session on giving as part of Living as a Church. And so that will be actually week 14. So we're going to do that um, last. And, uh, and then after that, we'll move on to our next uh, series here for our um, Thursday nights. So um, other than that, any other announcements? We have our discovery class after service on Sunday. Uh, and so whoever signed up, and even if you're not just, uh, and if you're not a member, would like to become a member or interested about Inquiring more information about the church, etc. You can stay after service on Sunday. After that, any other announcements? Our Seder meal is coming March 27th, and we'll have the missionaries' uh, testimony or time on the 21st as well. Um, so all those things we got coming up and. Uh, Yes, yeah, so today we're going to be looking at corporate worship, and it's, it's just a very important topic um, to talk about more specifically about what we do every Sunday morning, right, uh, when it comes to gathering as saints. And so um, let's go ahead and pray first, and then we'll go ahead and dive in. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace, for your love, for your goodness. Father, we thank you for one more week that by your grace, by your sustaining power, we are here, Lord. We thank you that you continue to sustain us and protect us and be with us. And that you continue to work everything for our good and your glory. We ask you, Lord, to guide us tonight, to teach us, Lord, through your word, Lord God, by the empowering of your Holy Spirit, Lord God, that we would attain these truths, Lord God, that come from your word, and that that will be our aim tonight, that uh, we could talk about structures or even terminologies, Lord God, but ultimately what we want, Lord God, is to be obedient to your word. So help us attain just that tonight as we um, learn together about corporate worship and about such a beautiful truth of gathering together as saints, Lord God, to bring you glory. So we thank you, Lord. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good job. All right. So as we can see tonight, we're going to be looking at corporate worship. And um, again, for all the lessons, I'm trying my best there to try to get them submitted. So uh, you can go to Sermon Audio um, to follow on previous lessons. All right. So um, let's talk about corporate worship, right? And so... One of the beautiful aspects of God's work in saving his church is that he calls those ki all kinds of people into fellowship together. So people from formal traditional backgrounds and people with more casual uh, backgrounds, all of them united to Jesus. Now, this can make some challenges when we gather together as people to worship. So something that we can think about here, a question that we can think about, am I going louder for some reason? something we can think about is how can corporate worship be an area of life that harms our unity or positively speaking how can corporate worship contribute to our unity right and I, I will define the term here but just as an introduction it's not only today that worship has the potential to be divisive when Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the at the well in John chapter 4 she 
invited him into a debate about worship, right? If you remember, so, she said, you know, should God's people worship in Jerusalem or at the Twin Towers in Gerizim or Abel of Samaria, right? And Jesus responds by teaching her about what worship is. And, you know, he says, as most of us know, that verse that says that God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in what? Spirit and truth, right? And so essentially, briefly speaking about the context of this verse, in spirit means everywhere, right? So according to the context, Jesus was saying that it's not just limited to that mount, to the other mount, right? It's, it's not by any physical location or by any specific mountain or a temple. And in truth, it means that it's responding to the one true God through his son, the one who in the book of John is called the true vine, the true b bread, the true shepherd, the true temple, the true son, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. And so rather than divide, divide God's people, worship should unite us because we worship the one God in spirit and in truth. So what is our goal here this evening, right? We, can, we can't tackle everything there is to say about worship, and we won't attempt to do that tonight. But as we near the end of the course, uh, of, the, of this course, uh, as our life together as a church, and the importance of our unity, we should consider how we, help, how we each help each other towards this ultimate goal of worshiping Christ. In many ways, God-glorifying worship is one of the sweetest and most valuable fruits of the unity we have been discussing here in our series. And at the same time, true worship will naturally foster unity, right? So because when we are transfixed with the beauty of Christ, that overflows into a desire to help others and see the love and value Christ has for us or in us. So we'll begin by defining worship and corporate worship, and then we'll look at four ways that corporate worship has a unique role to play in our life as a congregation. So first, let's just uh, do like a, a brief definition of worship. And, and, you know, it's been defined in many ways and many things, but it's one of, one of those things that we need to define and have in our, in our you know, in our minds as we are also deconstructing maybe some of the mainstream given definitions of worship, right? So first, the definition of worship. Worship is a rich concept in the Bible. There is no main Greek word that corresponds to our English word of worship, but lots of different terms. As we look through the New Testament in particular, it becomes clear that worship extends far beyond what goes on in a church on Sunday morning, and certainly far beyond praise in the form of song. So do you remember, how many of you remember that praise is fast songs and worship is slow songs? You remember that? Right? And sometimes it's actually reduced just to those terms, right? And as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So to the Romans also, Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your act of worship, right? So Christ, the perfect lamb, is, one, is the one sufficient sacrifice for us. He fulfilled all that the Old Testament temple worship system pointed to. So the sacrifices we offer in the New Covenant aren't burnt offers, but submission of every aspect of our lives to the glory and praise of God. Again, in the New Covenant, we are not offering burnt offerings as an act of worship, but submission in every aspect of our lives to the glory and praise of God. So something that we can say here, three aspects of what we can say about what worship is, is first, worship is God-centered. It's a proper response to the magnificence in the, in, the in the splendor and majesty of God's character. A God who's delightfully worthy of our praise. Worship goes beyond simply knowing intellectually what God is like, and what takes delight in the perfection of his, of his attributes. Now, also we need to know that worship is Christ-centered. It's made possible for human beings by Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We see this Christ-centered worship very clear in Revelation 5. 
God is sitting on the throne holding a scroll that is sealed. Only the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who is also the Lamb, can open that scroll. Only He who is worthy. And we read that He, Christ, stands in the very center of the throne, one with God Himself. Christ is, the pray, is, pr is then praised as the one who was slain, who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, right? From that point on, the book of Revelation worship is from that point in the book of revelation worship is addressed to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb and so also we are to see here that worship is spirit empowered before he teaches us to sing to one another to give thanks in our hearts paul calls us in, in, in ephesians 5:18 to be filled with the spirit Jesus teaches that the Spirit's ministry among us is one that brings Jesus glory. And John 16, 14 says about the Spirit that it will bring glory to me, that He will bring glory to me by taking from what it is mine and making it known to you. So having now this background in mind that worship is God-centered, Christ-centered, Spirit-empowered. Now let us suggest what a biblical understanding of worship is. It is a proper response to God Himself. Worship is, is something that is commanded of all moral beings, right? It's a natural and right reaction to the glory of God, of who God is. I've heard another definition of worship as being, you know, the overflow of everything you are and everything you do to a giving God. And it, it mentions it like that, to a giving God. Why? Because if we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping something. Our hearts are wired to submit, to put our effort, to put our personality, to put our beings, our actions into a motivation, into a submission. And so we're wired with that worship. And it's something natural, but the worth, uh, the object of that worship is what changes, right? So worship encompasses our entire lives. And it's not only the singing of praise to God. It involves both adoration and action. Worship does not end with what we say, but includes what we do. It is a delight in the beauty of God and of Christ. It is not a delight in the experience of worship. In our evangelical culture, worship too often refers to the emotions that we experience as we perhaps close our eyes and sing about God. And we can be more caught up in, the, in that experience than in the God who is supposed to be the origin of that experience. We should instead focus our hearts and minds on God and Christ in our worship to, that, to the extent that we're not motivated by a desire to be awed at the truth of who God is, we're not worshiping. So if worship has lots of passion, but not genuine thought, that's not true worship. The converse is also true. If worship is only thinking right things, but with no intent to steer the affections toward God, it is too false. So having some of these concepts of worship, right, that it means just more than a service, that it's a life that reflects submission to tell the world who is worthy of that submission, right? That is worship. Now that we know the extent of what that concept of worship is, now let's dive into now into the topic of corporate worship. And we talked about some of what worship is not, but what about corporate worship, right? The time that we gather together as a congregation publicly for the purpose of praising God. So remember that we already established that we're already worshiping, right? W with who we are, with what we do, with our priorities, with how we live our lives is a reflection of that submission to the object of that worship, which is for us God himself, right? And so how is that in contrast goes to what we call corporate worship, right? Or the gathering of the saints or Sunday mornings. Right for us. So, based on what I've just described as worship, you might th worship. You might think that our church picnic 
constitutes constitutes a corporate worship, right? After all, we're doing the things, we're doing everything for for the glory of God, and we're doing everything together as a congregation. But clearly, there's something more co to corporate worship than just that, right? So fortunately, God, and this is very important here, God has given us through Scripture about what happens when a congregation gathers publicly and here's the disclaimer for the purpose of worshiping God so in the New Testament we see commands for the church to and I kind of changed the color I don't know if you can see them from there but we see that God delineates what that corporate worship should look like so when a congregation gathers publicly for the purpose of worshiping God in the New Testament, we see commands for the church to pray in Colossians, Timothy. We see commands to read scripture publicly, Timothy, Colossians again, to listen to preaching and teaching, Acts and 1 Timothy, to baptize believers in Matthew, to share the Lord's Supper in Acts and 1 Corinthians. To encourage each other and praise God in song, Ephesians and Hebrews. And to give of their finances, 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians again, uh, 1 Corinthians, sorry. And then actually 1 Corinthians 14, 26 is clear that every one of these things that we do together must be done for the strengthening of the church to edify others. And so let's remember these aspects that the New Testament is delineating for us on how corporate worship should happen, which is the gathering of the saints with the purpose of exalting God together and partaking of the sacraments that He has given us, such as baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now this leads us to an important theme in Scripture that is worth mentioning. God has defined how we should approach him corporately. And so we can deduce then that it is possible to offer wrong worship. So God is infinite, all wise, omniscient. We are finite and sinfully self-interested in our own glory. So we can't know him unless he reveals himself to us. And we can't understand what worship will be. And we can't, and we can't understand what worship will be pleasing to him unless he reveals that to us makes sense right unless he reveals that to us we can't understand what worship will be pleasing to him and so the bible makes it very clear that we should worship how we should worship god particularly when we worship him together in public for example and these are just themes this is biblical theology going through the old and new testament which is not to be confused to be taken out of context in order to apply for services but as a theme we can see for example in the second commandment Exodus 24 God prohibits worship through images make it clear that the that he he makes it clear that he alone regulates how he will be served the consequences of this principle become clear when the people build and worship the golden I always have a hard time mentioning that. Calf? Calf. Calf. Yeah, it doesn't make a difference. You can say who and put a W and it's apparently who, you know. So calf? Calf. Noel. <laughs> you see how crazy English is? No. Th the L is there for some reason. The first L was. I don't know the relation. Okay. <laughs> but the, okay, Noel. <laughs> this is crazy. Golden calf, right? Something like that. So probably intended as a representation of God, right? Maybe. But obviously not pleasing to God because he is defining how worship is. He is defining how we should come to him, right? And later we actually see Nadab and Abihu offer unauthorized or strange fire too right to the Lord and a type of devotion that is contrary to his command and God strikes them dead as we see in Leviticus 10 1 through 2 3 
So Jesus rejected the worship of the Pharisees, quoting from Isaiah that they worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. So God is rightfully so jealous for his own glory that he reveals to us in scripture the ways that we are to approach him when we gather publicly. He does this so that our worship won't be confused with other religions or, or idols. He does it so that we will be blessed as he knows what is best for us and for the praise of his glory. So all this to say that when we consider corporate worship, we must understand that the Bible does not leave us to improvise, right? But regulates the elements of worship and the content of worship. Of course, the forms of those elements of worship may change over time. In one generation, we might sing a cappella. In another generation, we might bring in a guitar or an overhead projector. And one item of note here, corporate worship is public worship. It is time for the church to gather together when outsiders are invited and welcome to learn about the true God, as we see in 1 Corinthians 14, through their corporate worship. And through that, a congregation proclaims God to the watching world. So to sum it up, corporate worship is gathering publicly as a church to engage with God according to His instructions in scripture very important and this is a very good way to summarize it right there gathering publicly as a church meaning that what we do there is for the edification of the church and so the outsiders can see the one true God being worshipped as he is and so from that part of the phrase alone we can say not tailored for the world right but in obedience to God's instructions on how we should worship Him. And so that phrase pretty much sums up a lot there on how we should be looking at our gatherings, right? So one key implication, so sorry, I put that behind, so it's right there, that definition, right? Gathering publicly as a church to engage with God. And this is very important because we'll make the distinction here in a second. According to His instructions in scripture so one key implication of this is that the center of our corporate worship is the expositional message right as we gather around God's word to hear what he is having uh, to hear what he's saying to us and as we respond to that message why because this is the apex of engaging with God as he reveals himself to his people in his word and as his spirit makes that word effective in our hearts Singing is, of course, part of worship and is helpful in focusing our thoughts and engaging our emotions as we sing about who God is and what He has done. Prayer as well brings us together to confess our sins as corporate people, to also praise God for His gospel. But the exposition of God's Word is the centerpiece of the worship gathering. And so as a parenthesis here, at Cornerstone, we do believe this very principle that we're talking about. And so what we've been talking about actually has been divided into, the into two theological terms. And this is what it's called the regulatory principle of worship or the normative principle of worship. Now this can get people into long discussions here, but let's summarize like this. The, the regulatory principle to worship. Now this is an approach... It's, it's saying there are two approaches on how we should gather and worship God together as saints. There are two approaches that we've seen theologically. is regulatory principle and normative principle. Right? So the regulatory principle says that Scripture gives specific guidelines for conducting corporate worship services and that churches must not add anything to those guidelines because they are not explicitly placed on the word. Now, we, has, we saw a couple of slides up what those mandates are. Very clear from scripture, right? Do you remember? Prayer, songs of worship, preaching, giving, Lord's Supper, and baptism, right? And so at Cornerstone, we do 
do make that approach of regulatory principle of worship because we believe that God is giving us the way in which we should worship Him. Right? Now, we must not confuse this, the regulatory principle of worship, with form. The form is the ways in which we stay obedient to those commands and those elements that we apply can vary from church to church. So some churches do not use instruments. Some churches use only one instrument. Some churches use various instruments. Some churches do put the Word of God on a screen. Some others don't. But that is the form inside of that principle. Now, so that's why to some people we could not be regulatory because we have these elements because the Bible doesn't say that we should uh, use a projector and the Bible doesn't say that we should use a guitar, at least in the New Testament, or any instrument. But we interpret it as in the obedience of God's word of what he has said about singing, the form is what varies to serve the purpose of that principle. So that's what we respond to that. Now, in contrast to this, there is what is called the normative principle of worship, which says that whatever is not explicitly prohibited in Scripture is permitted in corporate worship. Get it? So this is where you would see elements like drama, interpreted dancing, uh, movie clips, prolonged, or etc., etc., on a Sunday morning setting. Right? Because it's the point of view that what God has not explicitly prohibited in the Word, we are allowed to use. And this is a principle that is obviously seen a lot and probably is the majority in our churches today. But we want to focus, we believe that we use the regulatory principle that we are wanting to be obedient to what God is explicitly saying about how we should worship Him and use that alone for corporate worship. Now those other art expressions can be in a, some of them, not all of them, in a sane way, reflect a form of worship to God. But remember that we are talking about an activity that is done together supernaturally that is different from any other activities, from a, from a home hangout, from a Saturday night youth explosion. We're talking about which those things can happen. I mean, they, they would enhance the communion and the fellowship of God's church, but we do not call them Sunday services, corporate worship, Sunday morning is the corporate worship time that we're talking about. And so by re regulatory principle, we say these are the elements that the Bible talks about. These are the elements that we will go by. Any questions there so far? Okay. So that was like a huge parenthesis. Sorry about that. Because <laughs> I don't think it's in the notes. But I, I, I kind of wanted to bring it up. Because it's, it's, it would be kind of important to kind of make that distinction from where our history, you know, from past churches and, and our history where we're at in this century and kind of defining, okay, this is the approach they are taking, this is the approach they are taking, and just kind of see those things play out in different places. So having defined corporate worship in our approach, now let's move on and consider this question. How do we maintain unity, right, which is the guiding theme here of our series, how do we maintain unity in corporate worship in spite of our diversity of preferences, right? Philippians 2, 2 tells us that as a church, we are able to be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent in one, on one purpose. But one of the things that gives real dynamite to the church witness is its diversity, right? The, the fact that different sinners with different backgrounds, choose to love each other because of the power of God at work within them. And we know that different people will find different styles of corporate worship be more or less emotionally and intellectually engaging, right? And so imagine from all different backgrounds and countries and cultures coming together as one to worship. So how do we approach corporate worship when each one of us has our preferences and likes and dislikes with regards to other forms of worship, like music or the style of the service. So as we continue with that verse, actually, in Philippians 2, we read that we are to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, 
But with humility, consider another as more important than ourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others, right? We are called to submit to each other for the sake of Christ, to love each other and serve each other in this way, even as we do so in many aspects of our church life. So the reason we're emphasizing this, right, in this point is because we so often we encounter a strange contradiction. And if you guys think about it, corporate worship is one is the one time when we are most self-consciously focusing our attention as a body on the glory of God. And yet so often corporate worship is the aspect of a church's life that prompts the most complaining of selfishness. And that shouldn't be the case, right? We should never think of corporate worship as something that mainly just involves me and Jesus. And this is such an important concept here, guys, because, you know, we can wake up on a Sunday morning. It's like, I'm going to get my Jesus time on Sunday morning, just me and the Lord, right? But the Bible actually delineates something different about that time on Sunday mornings. And, and so <laughs> the irony of think that this worship, you know, section of the week coming together as a body that mainly involves me and Jesus with the inspired background noises of 30 people, <laughs> right? It's not me and then 30 voices in the background backing me up to help me worship Jesus. Then we'll certainly be disappointed if it's not our preferred style. We need to think of corporate worship as something that we do together as a family. In love for each other and for God. So how do we learn to think that way? And it's so beautiful to start thinking that way, right? That we're coming together as one. Not to, we're coming one and then separate. And each of us have some kind of different channel toward God, right? One thing that can help this is approaching Sunday morning not with a sense that I have come full of good things to give to God, but with a sense of my desperate need of for Him. Worship isn't fundamentally about me. It's about seeing and savoring God together with the community of faith. And there's a quote by John Piper here that says, The basic attitude of worship on Sunday morning is not to come with your hands full to give to God, but with your hands empty to receive from God. And what you receive in worship is God, not entertainment. You ought to come hungry for God. God is mightily honored when a people know that they will die of hunger and thirst unless they have God. When we diligently pursue God in worship, we're satisfied by Him, not by the form that our praise assumes, right? So let me get more specific and give us four thoughts of what this might look like. First, it's a sacrifice, right? Corporate worship is glorifying to God because we do it together, and this involves sacrifice. Like so many other areas of our lives as a church, it just doesn't make sense to be resentful that I'm, not emotion, uh, that I'm not as emotionally engaged as others because of the style of music we're singing if I know that that, that part of worship together involves me making sacrifices, right? So it's a sacrifice where we come together and do not put our likes forward and get our day selfishly self-focused because that didn't happen on a Sunday, right? The sacrifice of listening to Rusty sing on Sunday mornings. And understand it's a joyful noise to the Lord. <laughs> it's a beautiful sacrifice, brother. Second, I'm teasing, but I'm not. Second, growth. <laughs> it's just the truth. <laughs> growth, right? We need to remember that in love we can learn to use worship styles and traditions that at first might seem awkward, but to grow in our appreciation for them. And, and obviously there are lines that are crossed, right? But 
we need to think about the fact that we are wrapped in a culture, wrapped up in a century, wrapped up in circumstances they have us right here. And sometimes for some people, they think that being holy is just being moved a couple of centuries back. As long as the principle is maintained and the holiness of the principle is maintained, I believe that we can be obediently worshipful to God. So, the growth, right? In love, we can learn to worship in different styles and traditions and knowing our appreciation for them. And third, being considerate. We should keep in mind the importance of not doing things that would distract others in the congregation from worshiping. That involves everything from what we wear to what we talk about um, with others about the sermon or the songs. It means not making fun of a song in a way that would hinder others from using them to worship. It also means that those who select songs should be careful and not to pick songs that are easy to make fun of. But uh, you're seeing how many ways we can be helping each other grow. Do you see that? With our words, with our approach, with our excitement for Sunday, with a follow-up from the sermon and talk about how our hearts were affected by it, right? With, okay, I, I don't like how the key of this song is, but I'll give it a try, right? And I know the logistics behind that, so. But, you know, those things, if you focus on that and that's all you focus, you missed it. You missed it right there, right? Now, us who organize the service walk in that fine line of being obedient to the holiness aspect of everything. And we try to do things that would actually help us all together worship, right? So we're not going to choose songs that have a rap part to it because most people wouldn't sing it, right? Because it's not congregational. So stuff like that, right? That would help us glorify God together. Fourth is honesty. It can only help our unity if we are honest about a couple of things. For one, our church services and singing do have a particular culture, as we mentioned. You can't escape that, right? If you go to one of our churches in Costa Rica, you might have to learn a couple of the hymns in Spanish and maybe a little bit speed up and with a maraca or something, right? We worship in English, writing here, so many of our hymns are American or European. We try to prioritize simple ac accompaniment to the sound of the people's voices, and that is the most prominent thing as we try to do it here every now and then, and more often we try to bring one of those songs that would be piano only and let everybody be heard. And we are not blasting the sound here. We do like the accompaniment of instruments, but the focus is to try to get everyone to come as one. So you don't see Brent over-empowering with a sermon. I call it a sermon within a sermon. Sometimes it seems like the worship leader and the preacher are like competing for a sermon right because one takes some kind of route and the other one takes another route but Brent focuses on taking us all to worship God together he puts the song forward we go up and worship the Lord together right so all of those aspects that come together we value songs with good words from many different centuries so our worship Sometimes it may feel like it's grandma's church and another time it might feel like it's a church on Mars or something. But we love each other well if we are aware that some people may have to sacrifice their preferences more. And if we listen to them as they deal with that and pray for them in that, right? This is how we grow together. Again, which is our purpose. Focusing on growing together. So corporate worship as a platform for unity. We've talked about how we can work toward unity in our corporate worship. With the remainder of our time, I'd like to discuss four ways, as we see there, almost done, four ways that our corporate worship helps our unity and our witness. And first, corporate worship displays our God-glorifying unity. First, corporate worship is an opportunity to display the unity that we have in Christ. It's wonderful when we can sit on our own in the morning and praise God for some facet of his character during the devotional times. But there is something special 
in gathering publicly and praising God together. As Peter reminds us, that's one of the reasons God has brought Jew and Gentile together into the church. He says, but you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people from, for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. So this is why Jesus is so insistent that we deal with areas of disunity before worship, right? You remember those verses in the New Testament. He says in the Sermon of the Mount, Therefore, if you present your offering on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, you leave your offering there before the altar and go. Be first reconciled with your brother and then come and present your offering. Paul echoes this teaching when he discusses the Lord's Supper, another aspect of coming together as a church. He says, for the one who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not properly recognize the body. The body. What does it mean not to recognize the body of the Lord? Well, Paul has been talking about how the Corinthians celebrate the Lord's Supper in disunity, humiliating the poor among them. The body of Christ he refers to here is the church. Unity must be present if we are to offer a pleasing sacrifice of praise to God. And when unity is, is present, corporate worship is a beautiful outpouring of God's glory. And not with feathers or gold from the vent. So then we should regularly, not just in preparation of the Lord's Supper, examine our relationships with each other as well as with God, right? The second thing here, we help each other to worship. So one of the great advantages as we worship together as a church is that we can help each other to grasp the glorious beauty of our God and help each other express our response in joyful praise and thanksgiving. Corporate worship then provides a, provides a platform on which we can serve another. And this happens in the structure of our worship services as we bring musicians together to help us sing, as men who have studied hard to prepare for a message on God's word preach, and as our voices and expressions encourage each other throughout the service. The author of Hebrews tells us to consider how to encourage each other in love and good deeds. So that certainly includes helping each other worship. Right? If you remember the verses in the New Testament that talk about singing, do you remember that those verses talk about singing to one another? Like, I know, I know it seems weird, but s encouraging one another through the singing. And so as we're thinking about corporate worship and, and trying to think about unity and worship, how, how great is it that you're not only praying for yourself before God, but for all those around you as you sing, Lord, I'm a sinner, right? In need of grace may say a song. We can say together as we are also struggling, right? And come together. But the coolest thing would be to actually sing to one another, like see each other in the face and sing those songs. That would be interesting. I'm not sure if that's what it refers exactly, but I've seen a couple of people do that. Now, aside from what I just mentioned, what are some ways in which we can help each other worship God when we gather together as a congregation? Since corporate worship grows our unity by giving us an opportunity to help each other worship God, how do we help each other worship? So here's a couple of ways that I... S yeah, here's a couple of ways in which we can help each other worship. And the first one's not there. Where is it? We can read the sermon text beforehand to prepare ourselves for discussions with others. Rusty very often po uh, posts on the WhatsApp group what is the scripture we're going to be looking at on that Sunday. So it helps to read the scripture before Sunday and get ready to, um, to prepare our hearts as we come in on Sunday to listen to that scripture being preached, right? Another one is for the next week. So that's also great. So if you take your bulletin home with you, you can actually not only have your prayer requests and see what's going on as far as activities, but you also will have the scripture for next week that would help you um, prepare your heart for Sunday. We sing joyfully, right? We sing together. We bring our voices up together. 
to the Lord. We can regularly attend the Lord's Supper and take that seriously in solemnity. And, and it's just a beautiful moment that, that we have every month as we come together. We can discuss the sermon after the service. We can talk about the ways in which we were challenged and our hearts were transformed. We can express joy to each other during the service, right? We can express that excitement that coming together as a body is. We can welcome those around us who are unfamiliar, those who are visiting, those who are there for the first time. We can be attentive during worship, right? We can be taking notes during the sermon. We can bring, if the phone is a distraction, you can bring your pi paper Bible, right? We can be mindful of families with small kids who might be distracting, right? Instead of giving them an ugly look, you rejoice in your heart for a young family who are bringing their kids up in the house of the Lord. And those are just some of those ways. Now the third thing as we talk about corporate worship as a platform of unity is the edifying. The corporate worship is edifying. It's, this is an opportunity for us to edify each other. You might be somewhat surprised to discover in Scripture that God isn't the only one to address during times of corporate worship. Paul actually writes divisions. We talked about this. For example, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord. When we sing on Sunday morning or read Scripture or pray, we're communicating not only to God, but also to one another. Why is this important? Because we need to be reminded of so many of, great, of the great truths of Scripture. Themes that we often return to in our times of corporate worship. That God created us. That He is perfectly just. That we have sinned against Him. That Jesus died as our substitute on the cross. We hear these truths, right? From the sermon, from the songs. It helps also to bring those together in our voices. To declare that together through a song. And to be engaged together as brothers and sisters. As we are singing together with our brother and sister next to us. Fourthly, corporate worship offers a taste of heaven. And this is to conclude tonight. And by the way, I've, I failed to mention the there's a very long quote by Dear Carson at the end of the uh, um, that is a, a great definition of worship that was uh, what not in the slides, but you can refer to it. Please read it. It's great. And fourthly, corporate worship offers us a taste of what heaven will be like. Heaven is the place where full community of God's people will dwell with him forever, praising his name and delighting in his glory. Parenthesis, heaven is not just that, right? It's not like a prolonged church service. How many of us used to think that, right? Like, what is heaven like? It's kind of like, a, is it like a Sunday service that never ends type of thing, right? No, it's actually what's supposed to happen here, but holy, but untouched by sin. It's life, it's culture, it's us. Doing everything we do. And, and, and why do we think that about heaven before? Because we reduce the worship to that. We reduce the worship to being that specific song. We reduce worship to being that specific Sunday morning. But if we think of worship as that lifestyle, as everything we do for the glory of God, as He intended to create us, as pre-Genesis 3, pre-fall, a life that is redeemed to the glory of God, whether we eating or drinking, do it. Now, we're told because we're here to do it for the glory of God. But there, whether we eat or drink, it's already to God's glory. And that's what's awesome. And so in heaven, when I come to Rusty, hey, can I go to your house to eat something? He'll be saying, sure. You know, what about seven? I don't know what seven will look like in heaven. And maybe some of the saints from the Old and New Testament and church history will join me and Rusty to eat a meal. Maybe we'll go look at a beautiful waterfall together, all of us, on one Sunday, us and Moses. And just look at it and see how God is great in that. Or we'll go to Saturn and look at the rings who, together for the glory of God with David. That's just another day in paradise, literally. And all of that we do it 
already in the glory of God. And so that's the beautiful thing. It's coming home is where we're supposed to be. We're kind of getting that here, but it's not there yet because there is a sting, right? A contamination. The best is yet to come, and it's not here, right? <laughs> that's, that's what's failing about that phrase. We hear it a lot like, it, like tomorrow, but your best life then, right? <laughs> so how many of us are excited about heaven, right? Amen. And, and, and that's in this time here that we worship together in a very minuscule, like super small, extremely small way. It's a small reflection of that because it's the time in which we have separated out of the week with other redeemed saints to come together and say, God is worthy of all of my being. God is worthy of all of my praise. God is worthy of all my obedience, my ears, my word. I submit to him. I listen to his word. And we come together to do that to the, with the purpose of glorifying God. And so as a taste of what heaven will be like in which every endeavor empowered by him will be done to the glory of God so what a beautiful picture I don't even I didn't even read the notes I just got excited <laughs> of that right the author of Hebrews paints a beautiful picture in chapter 12 but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of righteousness made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant to be able to dwell with God forever. And so when we come together in worship on Sunday morning, we catch a glimpse of the glory of that final congregation in heaven. That's when heaven feels most real and we esteem the things of God most valuable. We need the picture that corporate worship paints of heaven because despite the brokenness of this world, we are built for heaven. In heaven, we will be perfectly united as the bride of Christ. So every ounce of unity we experience while we worship corporately in this life points us forward to the ultimate unity we will know in him on that day. Any questions or comments? Yes. Yes. 